This episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. Engineers have watched over 2 million hours of Frontend Masters videos to upgrade their skills in the latest best practices in frontend development and Node.js. Popular video courses of theirs include courses on Advanced JavaScript, Angular 2, React, API Design with Node, and Functional and Asynchronous JavaScript. Many of their teachers have even been guests on JavaScript Jabber. Check them out at frontendmasters.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 251 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Amy Knight. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that is Kim Carter. Yep, um, and my name's Kim Carter, as, uh, as Charles just said. Um, I'm, a, I'm a, a software engineer. I do quite a bit of architecture. Um, I do uh, security in uh, many different areas. Um, a lot of web security, and network security, uh, web applications, um, you name it pretty much, um, I'm doing. And um, I'm currently working hard out on uh, the second physical or volume uh, of a book series called Holistic Inversic for Web Developers. And also running, uh, uh, or basically organising um, a couple of conferences. So I've got the OWASP New Zealand Day coming up soon. and. We've just had the uh, Christchurch Hacker Conference um, that ran uh, near the end of last year and sort of organizing that again for the uh, end of this year. That's kind of me. Makes sense. Now, uh, we've uh, been emailing back and forth about maybe uh, reviving Web Security Warriors, and it looks like you do a whole bunch of uh, InfoSec stuff, especially for web developers. Um, One thing that I'm kind of curious about just to kick the conversation off is it seems like most web uh, web applications that I know people that work on them um, most of the front end devs don't really worry too much about it they're it's it's all on the back end and you know oh boy you know can somebody get in hack our API or can somebody get into our database or something um, is this something that front end developers need to worry about Ah, uh, yeah, it is. Yep. So, so I mean, it really depends uh, what it is you're building, right? Um, <coughs> I mean, a lot of the time, uh, most of the security concerns um, are the are in the back end. Uh, that's sort of like, um, I guess, where the where the buck stops. But there are things in the front end that you can do, um, especially around uh, a usability and that sort of thing. Um, like sanitization, input sanitization, filtering, and um, and validation, and that sort of thing. Um, that actually uh, provides a better user experience, and and basically bakes um, some security in uh, the front end, so that it doesn't have to make uh, full round trips uh, to the back end. So you can actually sort of um, attack your um, secure, well, address security issues in the front end uh, before the back end even uh, gets to see them. That makes sense. So yeah, it is definitely a thing for the front end as well. And I mean, um, yeah, there's there's quite a few front end sort of exploits coming around now where you can actually um, attack things on your devices and that from the web browser. I mean, like um, like one excellent tool is um, is the browser exploitation framework. So you can basically break into a network uh, through the browser using those sorts of tools and and add persistence and traverse the networks and yeah, pretty much own or at least um, get to a place where you can start to uh, kick off other exploits 
on people's systems and uh, start to traverse the network. Uh, but that's all based on coming in through uh, web applications through the front end. Oh, really? That's that's yeah, interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that you could do all of that stuff from the browser. I mean, I just, yeah. I, you know, I just try and stay on websites that I think are safe. But uh, yeah, you don't you don't hear as much about yeah. the those kinds of things where it's, um, you know, they can hack your network and things like that from the browser. I mean, most most of the time when you're yeah. you're talking to people about being safe on the web, it's like don't go to bad sites or you'll get a virus. Well, yeah, that's true. But see, the thing is, a virus can do anything that the uh, author wants it to do. Uh huh. Um, I've just been working. Yeah, I've just been working on some uh, power. Well, should I say Windows exploitation via PowerShell? So basically, once um, a user activates a virus, um, that virus can do whatever the uh, creator has designed it to do. So, it, um, in the uh, terms of um, in terms of like PowerShell, which is um, which is what I've just been working on. Uh, you can <laughs> see because um, Windows uh, trusts uh, PowerShell explicitly. Um, PowerShell is an excellent attack vector to actually break into uh, people's systems and networks and add persistence uh-huh. and yeah, traverse across networks. And it's 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 actually very easy to do. And in most cases, um, it's uh, you can bypass um, antivirus uh, because a lot of the times what you do is you actually um, Basically, you give the um, give your target a virus. Uh, they run the virus. It could be a, a, like an office document or a, some sort of an executable. If you want, if they have um, enough trust in you, otherwise, just an office document or something that's going to basically uh, uh, catch their attention. And so, so once they run that, uh, that can uh, basically pull something down, uh, like pull a pull a hosted payload down. And, and then that can uh, run in memory and do all sorts of things in memory and uh, and completely bypass antivirus because I see this see the thing is the payload is encoded and antivirus is looking for uh, specific signatures and those signatures are really easy to change uh, just by changing the PowerShell a little bit and then encoding it again and then once uh, that payload is uh, run the antivirus doesn't see it and also it's not hitting disk it's not being saved to disk. Uh, so you can, yeah, so, yeah. I mean, antivirus is, gets pretty anal when things get saved to disk that it doesn't know about or that it sees as being um, dodgy uh, based on their signatures. But if it's not saved to disk, uh, many times you'll get past antivirus. All right. Well, um, let's let's go ahead and back up and, and talk about some of the more uh, common or basic things. Yeah, that's kind of what I was hoping is if you can maybe give us like a rundown of, you know, it's 2017, what are the most common problems that people that you see are still vulnerabilities for people? Yeah, so um, so normally the first place an attacker will uh, get into uh, your system or your networks is uh, via your staff, is via your people. Um, I mean, most attacks are coming uh, via... Uh, getting to know someone um, or uh, like uh, phishing attempts and that sort of thing. So people are still clicking on links and emails. People are still running office documents that have been passed to them or uh, that have been put in a a public place uh, that they can run and then that executes uh, some code on their machine. In most cases, the most successful attacks um, 
uh, started at least by uh, uh, social engineering. Um, I mean, we've got uh, zero days and that sort of thing, and and they um, are still being used, obviously, but um, but they're expensive because you've actually got to find. I mean, exploit and code, you know, a new one that no one else knows about, and it takes some, either takes some work, or you've got to um, uh, basically uh, buy one off the shelf, sort of thing. <laughs> so, so let me uh, yeah. let me define a couple of terms here. So, the first one is social engineering, which is when a hacker or a third party basically gets to know somebody or um, builds a relationship with, and then exploits. Um, somebody to gain access to a system. So they'll, you know, they'll talk them into giving them yeah. a password or something like that, either by posing as a coworker or something like that. And then um, yeah. a zero day is an actual exploit in the code that hasn't been discovered and disclosed. So it's been discovered, I guess, but had not. Yeah, disclosed. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so it's been, are discovered and yeah, no one else knows about it other than the person that's discovered it, essentially. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, the other way is um, passwords. Is basically just simple um, password stealing or password guessing. That is uh, uh, still one of the most effective ways of breaking in because it also doesn't leave a dodgy audit trail because it just looks like a, a legitimate uh, user has logged in and done whatever they've done and then basically the user... So the blame ends up back on the user. Right. They failed to type in their password properly, so it didn't work. Yeah, well, I mean... Uh, That's what it looks well, it like to work, the system. But, yeah. Uh, well, it did work, but um, about the attacker has taken things further. So once you own an account, uh, that uh, gives you a launching ground to get, um, to get system privileges if that user hasn't already got them. You know, I mean... Often it's good. Um, it's nice to be able to uh, target um, domain admins and that sort of thing. But if you haven't, you know, if you can't uh, can't get access to that person's uh, user account, then you can try um, all the uh, low privileged accounts in the organisation. And of course, we've got LinkedIn now, so you can build up a pretty uh, truthful organisational uh, hierarchy of what the organisation looks like. And then you can, <laughs> yeah, I mean. With all our social media, you know what people are into, what spins their wheels and that sort of thing. So it's it's generally fairly easy to uh, launch a, a social engineering attack of some kind and uh, build trust with your targets uh, before you start asking them to do things. So, so what you're saying is you can essentially start out with guessing passwords. So you get access to a low-level account and then... Um, yeah. you go on and you find out who the system engineers are, you know, the people that have higher privileges than you, um, you figure out, you know what, they like the Broncos and they are having a Super Bowl party at their house on Sunday. And so you call up and you say, Hey, I know the Broncos aren't in the Super Bowl, but blah, 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 to put them at ease. Oh, and by the way, my low level account that I hacked is having this issue. Can you blah, blah, blah. And then you start to collect information and, you know, eventually get yeah. enough information to get access to their account, and then you have higher privileges. Yeah, yeah. So, so basically, what we've got is we've got two two uh, fascicles in uh, the book series that I've been writing currently. So, I've got the first one, which is um, got the first two chapters, which walks through by uh, the thirty thousand foot view, because we try and get developers uh, back to a thirty thousand foot view, a nice and high level, so that they can think holistically and start thinking about all the 
all the um, all the possible attacks that could come against them and their organisation because generally developers are really are focused on what they're working on currently. So we tend to get tunnel vision. So basically, I get the developers to step right back, and then I um, go through setting up a team, um, like a team structure of what works best in a scrum team and with, and with baking security into it. So that's in the first chapter. And then I take the team down to the, a 10,000-foot view, so we get them to start taking what they've already learned down to a lower level and then start to focus in again and then continually getting them to step back as well because we just keep getting boxed into our tunnel vision. We don't see what's happening around us in terms of security and in the world. Then I go into the tooling setup. So what happens here is I get um, the developers and development team um, to set up a a penetration testing distribution. Uh, I add a bunch of tools and and go through how to configure them and that sort of thing. So I've got um, a Linux attack box and I've got a Windows box, which we use for basically just compiling some things and some PowerShell attacks and that sort of thing. And then we go into the physical chapter and the people chapter. The physical uh, the physical chapter and the people chapter are the first topic chapters of the book. Um, and then basically the next uh, physical or book, if you want to call it. So, so the physicals are a are a logical term uh, uh, for breaking up the book. So I've got three sort of separate books, kind of, but they all make one book. And the reason I broke it up is because it was just going to take too long to write the whole thing because there's just too much in it. And I wanted to basically get releases out so that people could start to um, get uh, good content out of it and, uh, I start to get educated. Um, so can I can I stop I just, you here for a second? Because um, yeah, yeah, you're kind of talking about your approach, and what I'm wondering is is you start at the thirty thousand foot view, and you start at uh, kind of setting up the team. What I'm wondering is what do you have to know at that thirty thousand foot view? I mean, what are the basic things that people have to just start with in order to start being effective with infosec? I'm kind of interested too, like, you know, we talked about social engineering, but what are like some front end specific things that people would want to look out for? Yep. So, so all the front end stuff is, is pretty much in the web applications chapter, which is uh, the last chapter of the two physicals. And the reason I put it at the end is. Could you get into those examples? uh, Yeah. Yep. But. Uh, just before we do, the reason I put it at the end is because we take a lot of that stuff uh, for granted and we should already know about those things. It's all the stuff leading up to that that we often don't know about and should know about. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It, it it does and it doesn't. I mean, it makes sense that there are things that we're going to need to know going into this, but um, at the same time, it's like, I guess I guess my thinking is is yeah I mean if there's if there's some exploit or some um, you know something that I should watch out for as a front end developer then you know yeah why why put it at the end you know why not just say hey make sure you're doing all these things and then come back around to uh, okay and then here's the other stuff you got to know yeah so basically it's because most people think that you know like the front end is. Uh, where 
organizations are getting attacked the most or like web developers think about you know the front end code that they're writing is what is how the organization gets attacked but nine times out of ten it it starts and within their organization with their people so they need to sort of like i think about all the social engineering attacks and that before they even start to think about other web applications but then yeah i mean if they're not interested in that then there's still quite a chunk of material in the web applications um, chapter. So, so some of the stuff in the web applications chapter um, is, uh, let's have a look. So we've got lack of visibility, which is basically insufficient logging and monitoring. Uh, we've got lack of input validation, filtering and sanitization, which covers the likes of um, a buffer overflows, cross-site scripting, cross-site request forgery, SQL injection, a NoSQL injection, command injection, you know, loads of different um, injections in there. Um, also, a lot of the stuff in the web applications chapter, um, OWASP already covers. So it's like I'm covering a lot of OWASP material and then I'm adding quite a bit of stuff um, around that as well. But right. web developers should already know about it. So, so this is something that I think is interesting. You, you've you've hit a whole bunch of stuff that I kind of want to unpack here, um, and I think I think talking about the technical end and then talking about the uh, people and organizational end, I think is also really interesting. Just because, yeah, I mean, we all assume that we're smart enough to not fall for this, but then it's the it's the assumptions of where we're safe that really pull us apart. But but yeah, let's let's yeah, dig yeah. into the technical end of things, and then let's circle back around to the people end of things. So one of the things you mentioned was logging, and then the other thing you mentioned was OWASP, and people should know about this. And I didn't even know what OWASP was until I'd been a developer for like six or seven years, and somebody finally said, uh, "That's the security kind of important stuff." So um, <laughs> for, so so, uh, do you want to talk about OWASP first? Because I think that's a resource that a lot of people should know about, and then I want to come back around and talk about why logging, which is so interesting, right? It's the most interesting thing we do as programmers. No, it's not. But why is that so important? So so start with OWASP. So so OWASP is the Open Web Application uh, Security Project. So so basically this is this is an excellent resource for uh, developers and penetration testers. Uh, so they run or they allow a chapter our leaders to run conferences in their country and that sort of thing. So we have the New Zealand chapter and we run an annual conference and we run regular meetups and that sort of thing. Basically just getting people along and educating um, and just providing a good place to uh, discuss um, issues for uh, developers and engineers. So that's kind of OWASP in a nutshell. I mean, they've been around for quite a while and they do a lot and they have some excellent resources. Um, so, yeah, um, also going back to the processes and practices chapter, uh, we uh, build up an agile development and practices uh, sort of set so that um, so that as a developer within your team, you've got a bunch of things that you can work through and this all uh, becomes part of your, of your scrum uh, definition of done. So the idea is that by the time you deliver your solutions, um, penetration testers shouldn't have to be testing for the OWASP top 10. So the OWASP top 10 is a 10 uh, security, and 
not only defects, but areas. So it's 10 areas of aware application security uh, that, are the, uh, that are rated uh, to be the um, top 10, right? The worst ones, or the ones that we keep making the same mistakes with. So as developers, we keep introducing these things, right? So our SQL injection, I think, is, I think it's still number one. It's been like a number one for like years, or it's been in the top 10 for um, about 10 years. So, so we're just not learning, right? And SQL injection is really easy to mitigate. Yeah. So, so, so yeah, SQL, so, SQL injection. Yeah, so yeah. the idea. It's usually so the just idea built is in. That, the, the filtering is usually just built in. Anyway, go ahead. But the idea is that the penetration tester, when, once they get hired and uh, which is often at go live or at the end of the project, uh, they shouldn't have to be uh, still finding OWASP top 10 defects. They should be working on the hard defects that the web developers uh, haven't found, right? The, like the development team should have already addressed all the top 10. And these are the simple things, but still we're seeing um, developers you know, aren't even aware of them, right? And that's the whole idea of the book, is to basically open people's eyes, take them back to the 30,000 foot view to start with, show them everything that can go wrong, or as many things as possible that can go wrong, all in an ordered sort of uh, structure. And then sort of at the end of it, say, well, this is the web applications chapter, after we've looked at all the other chapters, which is networking, VPS, uh, people, uh, cloud, and yeah, um, a bunch of other chapters. So then we dive into the web applications chapter, which has got a whole lot of things that they need to, as developers need to start uh, thinking about as well when they're writing code. Let's take a break from this episode and really quickly talk about finding a job. You know, searching for a job can feel stressful, scary, and time-consuming. Pushy recruiters try to sell you on roles you don't actually want, and the job boards make you feel like you're throwing your resume into a black hole never to be seen again. And sometimes you go all the way through an interview process just to find out that the very end that the salary offer or company culture doesn't match what you're looking for. Well, there's a solution. Hired.com is the world's most intelligent talent matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities. They make the job search faster, focused, and stress-free instead of endlessly applying to companies and hoping for the best. Hired puts you in control of how and when you connect with compelling opportunities. And after completing one simple application, top employers apply to you. And the best part is, is that you get money. That's right. They pay you if you get a job through them. Listeners to this show can earn double their normal hiring bonus by signing up with the show's link. That's right. You get $2,000 instead of $1,000. So go sign up at hired.com slash JavaScript Jabber. So how do they find out what the OWASP top 10 are? Because... Again, I mean, you know, I've, I've heard of OWASP. I occasionally drift over to their website, but it seems like, you know, Amy's asking what are the most common or most hairy, most scary things out there. And it seems like OWASP has already identified them. So how do yeah. people find those? Yes. Um, well, they're not yeah. actually the most scary. They're just the most prevalent. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah that's, that's kind of like, like I was thinking, you know, because we like to keep this podcast kind of, open to people of all skill levels. So, you know, I have only been doing this a few years, so I'm trying to think like for developers who are new, you know, what is there something that they should be keeping an eye out and 
is, are there basically like, you know, what are the most common things? And then my other question was going to be like, is there any like low hanging fruit that just like would be basic competency for anyone? Definitely. So that is the OWASP.10. So that is the really low hanging fruit. So these are the um, mistakes we keep making year after year. And they are the most common mistakes. That's why they're the top 10. So yeah, if you just Google OWASP top 10, uh, 2013, they're working on an, um, another one at the moment. But 2013, I think, is still current. Um, so number one for 2013 is injection, right, which covers a whole lot of different types of injection attacks. And then we've got a number two is broken authentication and session management. And then number three is cross-site scripting. And we've got a few others um, down past that. But yeah, they are pretty much the ones that we should be looking at um, to start with to, um, to make sure that they aren't in our application. So a lot of these are, you know, the ones that we've known about for years. There's really nothing new. Pretty much, yeah. Yep, yep. They're pretty much your bread and butter uh, for a web application developer that they should essentially should already know about and I shouldn't be struggling with and and once the penetration tester gets his hands on the application there shouldn't you know uh, there shouldn't be any OWASP top 10 issues uh, uh, that still exist one thing that I think is interesting about the things that you listed and you know Amy's saying yeah those are things that you know it's nothing new it's it's old news but at the same time um, you know, a lot of people still miss it. I mean, that's why they're talking about it. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting yeah, about exactly. it is that a lot of the modern web application frameworks, I mean, Ruby on Rails does it. I think Express does a lot of this stuff. Uh, they have tools in there to mitigate a lot of this stuff. So it's really just yeah. comes down to using your tool properly, not necessarily. Really- yeah, yeah. In many cases, yeah, in many cases, that's true. Um, in the likes of. Uh, and Node.js, uh, we've got a huge ecosystem in NPM uh, now, and and many of those uh, packages uh, do not take security security seriously, and there are uh, issues in there, and that's why we've got the likes of the Node Security Project and Snipe and that um, going hard out. So how do we get, this is another thing, how do we get our open source contributors and authors to take security seriously? Yeah, so there's a section in the web applications chapter um, around that uh, called consuming free and open source. Uh, so I've listed that as a risk and then I've got the countermeasures for that. Um, in terms of getting uh, the actual authors to take it seriously, is pretty much the same as getting our, you know, I mean, our development teams to take it seriously. I mean, we're all in the boat of being uh, software engineers, right, uh, whether we write the code for ourselves, or whether we, you know, whether it's closed source or whether it's open source. So basically, just got to <laughs> learn about our mistakes and stop making them. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, how do we get our teams on board? Like, how how do we how do we get teams that are thinking about this? Because yeah, most of the development teams that I've worked on, it basically boiled down to hey, we're going to use the framework, and hey, we know that it has all these features that, you know, avoid these top 10 issues. Yeah. Um, so so in the consuming free and open source uh, section, um, in the countermeasures, 
Uh, uh, there was an excellent podcast, I've um, noted an excellent podcast by uh, Debbie Edwards from IBM, and she um, discusses uh, some really good initiatives uh, that they take on uh, setting up some process uh, that allows their development teams to uh, still move really quickly, uh, but they've got like um, they've got like a list of uh, of all the packages and that that the development teams can consume. Mm-hmm. So and that- and then the set of processes and that that um, the IBM use in order to uh, critique packages. So they've got a selection of packages that development teams can consume. And if like the development team decide, oh yeah, uh, we don't have any packages already that we can use for this specific task, uh, let's look at this one. And then, and then they've got like a set of steps to go through to start critiquing that actual package and basically get it into the list of allowed packages within the organization. So when they're when they're uh, evaluating these, are there specific tools that they use? It sounded like you mentioned one or two, or is it just yeah, yeah. a certain set of techniques that you run through and go, okay, I'm going to look for this, I'm going to look yeah. for that, I'm going to look for the other? Yeah, so it's a bit of both, right? So uh, there's a section in there called um, called consumption is your responsibility, and I've got some um, just some techniques about uh, how you can look after yourself and you know, what not to run and you know, what to look out for when you're installing stuff and that sort of thing. Uh, like uh, the likes of do- a doppelganger packages, right, which are packages that are named very similarly to other packages. So if the developer makes a typo or something, they could be pulling down essentially a malicious um, package that's been added to the registry. There's been a lot of um, malicious packages that have actually made their way into NPM. Uh, so we've got... Um, We've got whitelisting, uh, so you can whitelist packages in NPM Enterprise. And then the likes of tooling, we've got uh, you know, we've got quite a bit in there. We've got NPM Outdated, NPM Check, David, Retire JS, Require Safe, Bithound, Node Security Platform, and Snike. And there's probably others coming out um, as we speak. So there's a lot there that can actually help us uh, to increase our security. So... Kind of switching topics, uh, you put in the show notes a bunch of different posts and I was just taking a look at one and I know I'm familiar with like having to put captures on a lot of things, um, especially like, for, you know, well, only for the front end. Um, but what you, in this post, it talks about, there's actually like some vulnerabilities for that. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? I uh, mean, vulnerabilities for captures? Yes. Okay. Because um, because we put them on our site thinking that they're a good thing. So are there downsides to them? Yeah, right. So so basically the downside is that it annoys users and users shouldn't have to jump yeah. through hoops because it's not their problem. Uh, security of the website is is the problem of the website. So So that sort of thing should be invisible to the user. So I've got a wee example in there of uh, something that I've done because I did quite a bit of research on this too. And so, so I just um, created a wee bot pot, right? So, uh, which is just a, a just a hidden input field. So, so basically, the message gets through if that bot pot is not populated. So what you can do is you can um, hide the bot pots uh, either using just a hidden field or some CSS. So the end user doesn't see it. So, you know, it doesn't, you know, to them it doesn't um, mean anything. It's only there for um, for the likes of our bots that 
uh, go through uh, your website, so filling out all the forms, uh, forms, sorry. So because it's uh, hidden, uh, they'll go along and put a whole lot of stuff in there, and then when it gets to uh, your server, you check whether there's something in there, and if there is, then you log it and ignore it. Right, because the, pro- the program or the bot is going to look at the form, and it's going to look at the code, specifically the HTML or the DOM, and it's going to see that field and fill it in, whereas a normal user wouldn't. Exactly. Exactly. And um, and for me, I've used it on my website, and it's it's I haven't, um, well, should I say it's worked basically 100% of the time, and I've been watching the logs, and yeah, so it works, and it doesn't annoy users. I'm going to use Chrome developer tools, and I'm going to send you a message in one of those fields now. <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, so I, I want to, so by putting captures on other than annoying users, are there security downsides to that or is it just, uh, they're worse. is just that they're ugly? Yeah. So from memory, there were, uh, from memory, there were, um, there were some of the, uh, vendors that were doing some uh, fairly nasty stuff. Um, I, I discussed it in my book. I don't know, I, I don't know whether I should, uh, <laughs> Uh, say who they are on the podcast or not. Public shaming. <laughs> That's up to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, nah, I, I won't, but it's in the book if you want to check out who they are. <laughs> so I, I want to go back to the idea of training teams to think about this. Because most of the time we we get in, we, you know, we kind of bang around, we get stuff to work, and then... Um, and then we just release it. <laughs> yep. So, so how do we, how do we train our teams? How do we make this part of our process so that when I'm building a new feature and I decide, okay, I'm done, that it's actually done, and I'm not going to have to come back and solve a major problem that I've exposed somebody's data or given somebody an attack vector or anything like that. Yep. Um, so, so I've got a bunch of um, of processes and practices in the chapter four um, under the agile development and practices section, which basically um, helps uh, your development team uh, to lift their security. So uh, we've got the likes of evil test condition. Actually, I probably should start off with um, establishing a security champion. I think that's probably one of the most important things. So establishing one of the developers uh, within the team as a security champion. So it becomes their job to uh, mentor the others and to get up to speed on uh, security issues themselves. Uh, so I think once you've actually uh, established a role like this and allowed uh, the engineer that you think would be best for it to basically take that role on and they're running with that role, I think once, of it, you know, once that's actually happened, and then they can start to go through and basically make sure the team will coach the team to do the other processes and practices. And some of these things are, are the likes of evil test conditions, right? which are just um, test conditions, which we often do within a scrum team, but thinking about it from an attacker's perspective. Often developers are not thinking about how their worlds are going to be attacked. So the security champion there can uh, sit with the uh, team as they're doing uh, the test conditions and help them um, build up those evil test conditions. Um, so I also address uh, the cheapest place to deal with defects. 
So often what happens, like just as you uh, mentioned, Chuck, like we wait to the end um, of our development cycle, like Go Live comes along and then we uh, throw it up, we throw the uh, project over the fence to the penetration testers and they find all the defects that we should have found, all the simple stuff, and they don't have time to find uh, the stuff that uh, the real attackers are often going to find as well, which is a problem. So, uh, so what we do is we, we pull um, a lot of the security work up front to within every uh, sprint. So we've got the cheapest place to deal with defects there, which is uh, where I address where the cheapest place actually is, and it is within um, every sprint. Uh, so we've got a security-focused um, TDD, so, and we've got uh, a T- T- um, another one that's TDD. T- oh, TDD. So, okay. Yep, yep. So you're driving – essentially it's um, – Essentially, it's regression testing. So, so what happens is, uh, what I've used, I've used, uh, I've used the Zap API, which is an OWASP product. It has a large uh, collection of known uh, vulnerabilities and exploits for those vulnerabilities baked into it. It's an HTTP intercepting proxy, a little bit like uh, Burp, um, or uh, yeah, some of the others. There's quite a few of them there. Um, so it's a little bit like that, and it has an API, and you can program against it. It's got um, – so we've got a Node client for it. We've got a, a Ruby client for it. We've got a Python client for it. We've got quite a few clients as well. So you can just uh, pull those into your project, into your test suites. So what happens here is you write your tests, and you basically just tell Zap uh, uh, to attack your application. So the first thing you need to do is actually proxy some rec- proxy some requests through Zap back to your uh, a web app, and that uh, builds up the sites tree within Zap. So Zap knows what your web application looks like, and then you basically just issue uh, different types of requests and different types of, um, yeah, so different types of, of requests on how uh, Zap can attack your uh, web application. So it can attack your web application in in quite a few different ways, and it has, like I said, a large uh, collection of X of known exploits that it can attack your web application with. So you're basically just telling it to attack your web application. So uh, what I've done is I've, I've built up something like that, and I, I put it in and put it into a nightly build. So the developers are, are working away during the day, adding features, and then they come back in the morning and they get a report from. Uh, Zap that they've got a bunch of uh, well, someone's introduced some defects, and it'll show you where the defect is. It'll show you the attack that Zap used, and yeah, so you can go and uh, reproduce that attack, and then you can go and fix it. So it's things like that that basically bring finding the defects right up front, because often that sort of job is done in the penetration testing stage at the end of a project. So we're bringing that right up front. You're saving huge costs because you don't have to unwind all your stack uh, to find where the defects are. So, I mean, so let's go live, right? And uh, the penetration tester finds a defect and then uh, passes it back to the development team. Well, the development team then has to get their heads into the space of where they wrote that code, and that can often take hours to get to the point where they actually remember the code that they were writing in order to work out are the relevance of the defect with the code that they're writing. 
So if we can add that into a nightly build, then the developers come in the next day and it's all fresh in their minds and then they can go and fix the defects as they're introduced. So it's much quicker and that's how it saves so much money. Then we've got the likes of um, code reviews and there's some um, steps in there on um, you know, like how you can do better code reviews. So we've got um, yeah, dynamic analysis and linting and uh, techniques for asserting discipline and inherently undisciplined languages uh, like JavaScript. So we can add things like um, a static type checking, which is essentially the implementation of uh, design by contract or DBC uh, for those architects. Um, peer programming is also a good one, especially if you've got um, someone that's uh, sitting beside you that has got a security focus. So, so that's where the likes of um, your uh, a security champion can sit with another developer and peer program. And then the goodness that the uh, security champion has learned uh, quickly rubs off on the developer uh, that he's pairing with. Yeah, that yeah. So there's quite a few things there that you can actually add in. Cool. Well, it sounds like. Uh the book's kind of the, a good place to go if you're looking to figure out how to build security into your processes and apps. Um, it also feels like um, we spent 45 minutes or so talking about something that could you could easily spend hours and hours and hours digging into. So, um, so yeah. So, uh, you know, maybe we could talk about this later. I know we've also been talking about maybe reviving Web Security Warriors. So that's something also we could talk about. Um, if any of you out there have a feeling about any of this, uh, I'd, I'd love to see comments on the website. So uh, anyway, um, I don't I don't think I have any other questions. Do you, Amy? Nope, I'm good. All right. Well, um, if people want to check out your book, Kim, or hire you to solve some of these issues for them, where do they go? Um, so the book's currently on uh, LeanPub. Um, I can I can leave a link in the show notes if you want. Mm-hmm. And um, and my uh, website's just uh, binarymist.io, and I can leave a, a link in the show notes. All right. Well, um, let's go ahead and wrap that part of the show up and head into our picks. Uh, Amy, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. So the first one I have is uh, something that I saw tweeted, um, but it looks pretty good. It's another like GitHub list of a ton of different resources, but this one is uh, specifically computer science video courses. So I will put a link to that in the show notes. Um, It has like almost 9,000 stars. So, uh, and I've kind of scrolled through some of these. They look pretty, pretty good. So this would be a good thing to start if you want to read up on that stuff. And then uh, the other one, not so programming related. Um, I think I learned about this Twitter account from my mentor, but I followed on Facebook and it's called Tiny Buddha. Um, And although I am not Buddhist, uh, there's just a lot of wisdom in a lot of the stuff that this whatever thing is is posting these tweets is probably like some kind of bot or something. Um, but there's just, there's like a lot of wisdom in them. And so it's a nice, uh, compliment to all of the, uh, tech stuff that comes through my feed. And then of course, all the political stuff that is coming through lately. So it's just a nice little reminder in there. Uh, that is it for me. All right, I'm going to jump in with a couple of picks here. Um, the first one is, is, and I think I've mentioned it on the show before, 
because um, I went to CES and I talked about the um, the desks, but um, I just switched my desk over. I had a big modular, kind of like a cubicle, almost exactly like a cubicle kind of desk in my office. It took up like more than half the room, um, but um, I got rid of it and I got some of the motorized sit-stand desks. Uh, the brand I went with was Autonomous.ai, and uh, they have... I got the cheap model, not the kind with the AI in it that figures out what you what your habits are and goes up and down it yourself. Um, I, I guess I'm just not so lazy that I can't just hit the button myself. But anyway, um, I, I'm really, really digging it. Nice desks. The other thing is, is that it allowed me to consolidate. I had an IKEA Lifehacker standing desk set up sitting on top of my desk on one end. And I had a monitor set up over there and a monitor set up um, where I sat, and then I would just move back and forth with my laptop. And so I've been able to combine it all, and now I have, like, this four-monitor setup. And anyway, it's pretty nice. So um, I'm pretty happy with, yes. with all of that stuff. So uh, I posted a picture to Facebook. I don't know why my phone wouldn't post it to Twitter, but it wouldn't. So anyway, um, yeah, I've got piles of stuff that I pulled off of my desk in my office now. But, uh, yeah, we're, we're getting it all rearranged. It's been pretty nice. So I'm going to pick the autonomous. They're pretty desk. expensive, aren't they? Um, I got their cheapest model, and I think they were like three hundred dollars a piece. So okay. So if you're buying that's them good. on your own, I mean that that's fairly reasonable, but it's not like an impulse buy cheap. So um, yep. anyway, I'm I'm really liking them, and then um, yeah, I just I, I think that's all I'm going to pick this week. Um, Kim, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, so um, summer. <laughs> Summer's uh, my first bit. Uh, 25 to 30 uh, degree days is um, is definitely good for uh, pulling you out of the uh, out of the spring and, and winter and that sort of thing. Just been really enjoying uh, like having doors open in the office and just like just so much heat coming in. It's just been really nice. Um, Second pick uh, uh, would be my uh, <laughs> uh, coffee machine and grinder. So I've got a, I've got a BBMA Doma Bar Super Lever and a Mazza Mini uh, sitting about th- uh, three metres away from my uh, desk, which gets a lot of use. Um, so that sort of helps me. Uh, I, get, uh, I get through long days. Uh, so I'm a contractor and, um, and yeah, basically do a lot of day, day work and then a lot of night work as well. So it's... Uh, it's good for keeping me awake, and it, um, and you can brew uh, delicious coffee with it. Um, a third pick would be uh, the Christchurch Hacker Conference uh, held in Christchurch, uh, New Zealand. Uh, first time was uh, last year, and we'll be running that again at the end of uh, 2017, uh, probably October, I would think. Uh, so, yeah, it was really good last year. Um, it was this, uh, we got 100 uh, just over 100 people uh, in this um, cramped up lecture theatre, which had, um, this is probably not very good advertising for it, but um, uh, the air conditioning, uh, basically there wasn't any um, in that little room, so people were uh, uh, sweating quite a bit. Uh, so we're going to be um, finding a, a much nicer uh, room uh, for this year, and uh, people are looking forward to it, so should be good, and a lot of good uh, talks. Uh, happened last year and should be the same this coming year. That's it for me. 
All right. Well, um, yeah, I already asked where people can go to find your stuff. So let's go ahead and wrap this one up. Thanks for coming, Kim. Cool. Cheers. Catch everyone next week. Hey, everybody. This is Charles Maxwood. I just wanted to talk to you really briefly about JS Remote Comp. Uh, We just picked speakers. Things are looking really good. And uh, we're really excited to cover a broad range of topics for JavaScript developers. So if you're looking to learn things about Node.js, about becoming a better developer, about deployment, about mobile development, and much more, and much more about JavaScript, then come check us out, jsremoteconf.com. You can also find it by going to devchat.tv slash conferences and then picking the conference you want. We have last year's recordings there. We have this year's uh, conference coming up. So make sure you get your ticket and we'll see you there.